I'd like to invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 32. Genesis uh, chapter 32, as we make our way through this book, considering the life of Jacob, uh, we uh, uh, see in this chapter his preparation uh, to meet his brother Esau, and also his preparation to enter back into the land of Canaan. And so uh, I'd like to read to us the entire chapter today, so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. 
And Jacob's hip was, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob said to him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. When the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would uh, grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, last week we saw how Jacob was able to escape the clutches of his uncle Laban. After serving him for 20 years, he was able to escape with all that he had, with his wives, with his children, with all of his possessions, and Laban was forced to walk away from him empty-handed, and thus uh, walking away from the pages of Scripture, never to bother Jacob again. And shortly after that tense encounter he had with his uncle Laban, we saw at the beginning of our chapter today that he encountered angels. He received a vision of the heavenly hosts, uh, which served as a confirmation that the Lord had been with him throughout his entire stay, his entire exile in Padam Aram, and also as a continuing promise that the Lord would be his shield and defender escorting him and his camp back to the land of Canaan. As we saw, this is a very timely vision for Jacob to receive because he's about to go from the frying pan into the fire as he prepares to encounter his brother Esau. His brother Esau, who 20 years prior, he had cheated out of his blessing. His brother Esau, who comforted himself by planning Jacob's death, who was planning to kill his brother, And now he has to face the music. He has to face Esau. And as we see in our passage today, he is very afraid. And yet he receives this vision that the Lord is with him, that the heavenly host, this other encampment, is shielding and defending him and escorting him back into the land of Canaan. But first, he must encounter Esau, whom he has learned at this point, is now residing in the region of Seir or Edom. Now, this is the area which is southeast of the Dead Sea. And this is ultimately the land that uh, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, would reside in. And so having learned of the whereabouts of his brother Esau, Jacob sends messengers to announce his arrival. And he does so using very deferential language. Do you notice how he instructed his servants as messengers to speak to Esau? calling him his Lord and uh, calling Jacob uh, Esau's servant. 
Now, even allowing for typical Oriental custom, ancient Near Eastern custom, where they would be kind of over the top in politeness to one another, this is certainly not the typical way that you speak to your twin brother. I mean, you don't address your twin brother as your Lord. You don't call yourself his servant. But clearly here we see that Jacob is beginning to wrestle with a guilty conscience. As he comes back after 20 years, he begins thinking about the things that he did to his brother, the ways in which he took advantage of him, the ways in which he cheated and deceived his father. He's beginning to feel guilty about it. And so clearly here he wants to put himself in a humble position before Jacob, uh, before Esau in order not to incur his wrath. And, and he gives in verse 5 this list of possessions that he is able to, uh, that, he, that he has uh, accumulated. And here is a subtle hint of Jacob's ability to lavish gifts upon Esau, which ultimately he does in hopes of winning his favor. He wants to find favor in his brother's sight. So having sent the messengers out, the messengers return in verse 6 and give Jacob the news that Esau is coming to meet him and that 400 men are with him. Now, 400 men is a size that is larger than the, the, the force that Abraham summoned to go fight the kings of the east back in chapter 14. And the report that the, that the messengers bring is pretty ambiguous. They say he's coming to meet him. They say he has 400 men with him, but they don't say what Esau's intentions are. What does he plan on doing with these 400 men? That's ambiguous. And and at this point, for the reader of Scripture, the hearer of Scripture, we too are in Jacob's position. We're not told Esau's demeanor at this point. Is he angry? Is he going to destroy Jacob? Or does he have something else in mind? Well, Jacob, here upon hearing this news, assumes the worst. Despite the recent vision of the heavenly angels, the heavenly host that is, is acting as a shield and defender, we see in verse 7 that Jacob totally panics. We read that he is greatly afraid and distressed. And he, he, he does something which I, I think is best interpreted as a, desperate, a, a, a very desperate act. In verse 7 and 8, he divides his group into two camps in hopes to mitigate the potential damage. If reasoning, well, if if Esau attacks one camp, then the other camp will be able to escape. This does not seem to be motivated by by faith. It seems uh, uh, as if he is acting in desperation and not really believing the promises of God that the Lord would be able to protect him. And yet in this moment of panic, This moment of distress, Jacob then in verse 9 does the right thing, and he turns to God in prayer. We have this prayer that is recorded, which actually is the longest prayer that is recorded in the book of Genesis, and really, uh, in my opinion, is the highlight of Jacob's spiritual uh, maturity. As he approaches the Lord and he addresses God, being the God of his father Abraham and the God of his father Isaac. He begins by addressing God as the one who had initiated and renewed the covenant promises, first to his grandfather and then to his father. And now in calling upon the name of the Lord, Jacob includes himself as the next covenant partner. And then he, in verse 10, he confesses his unworthiness. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness 
that you have shown to me. He, he attributes to God all that he has as merely an act of God's grace. Even as, he, even as he looks upon the two companies that he has now separated, he realizes, thinking back of God's faithfulness to him, he left the land of Canaan with merely a staff in his hand. And now, reflecting upon all of the blessings of God, having a size big enough to divide into two camps, he realizes God's grace in his life. And he realizes that he does not deserve a lick of it. And so he says, I'm not worthy of any of these things. All of this has come from your grace. But then in verse 11 comes the petition. Please deliver me. He requests deliverance from the hand of his brother Esau, whom he fears. And then he concludes the prayer in verse 12, but by recalling God's spoken covenant promises to him. Do you notice that in verse 12? But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You see, here Jacob turns to what is certain. The promises of God, the spoken word of God, that he is going to conclude his prayer upon, resting and relying upon these promises, even though his present circumstances do not seem consistent with God's promises. You see, according to God's promises, he's going to bless Jacob. He's going to do him good. He's going to cause his descendants to be as the sand of the seashore. But how on earth could that happen if Esau is coming with 400 men and about to obliterate their camp, how on earth can those things be consistent? You see, ultimately, Jacob, in his prayer, does not come away with an answer. And yet, in requesting deliverance, in calling upon, uh, uh, claiming the promises of God, he, he leaves it to the Lord to resolve this seeming contradiction. And I think this is what we see really throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalms, especially in the Psalms of lament. We see Psalms where, where, where the psalmist will say, Lord, I want you to look at my present distress. I want you to look at my present circumstances. They're very bad. And it seems as if you're not around. It seems as if you're not here to help. It seems as if you, there's one Psalm where he says, it seems like you have your hand in your cloak. You got your hands in your pockets. You're not helping me. And yet, you've been faithful in the past, and you've promised, been fa- you've promised to be faithful in the future, and so I'm going to rest in the promises of God. That's what Jacob does here. His present circumstances do not seem to be consistent with how God will, will resolve it, and yet, ultimately, Jacob says, that's your problem, Lord. You promised to do me good and make my descendants as the sand of the seashore. Well, having turned to the Lord in prayer, having claimed the promises of God and requesting deliverance from Esau, Jacob does not remain inactive. He doesn't let go and let God. But he, in verse 13, begins to take reasonable and calculated moves in order to win his brother's favor. He, he takes uh, uh, sheep and goats and cattle and all of the possessions he has there before him in the two camps, and he assembles together a, a gift for his brother. But he strategically uh, spaces this gift, this, uh, uh, the gift of sheep and goats and, uh, and cattle, a, a total of 550 animals, by the way, of uh, princely sum. And he strategically spaces these animals in, in droves 
so, that, uh, so as to maximize the effect upon Esau, so that by the time Jacob arrives before him, he's already received these series of gifts. It's kind of like Christmas morning, right, boys and girls? You don't get all of your presents at once. You don't tear into them all, or at least you shouldn't, right? Your parents want to maximize the effect. They want to give you a gift, and they, usually they'll, they'll start off with a small gift, and then they'll give you another, and then another, and then another, depending on how generous your parents are, right? But that, that's the point, right? You don't just give everything at once, but you space it out to maximize the effect. And here Jacob is strategically trying to win over his brother, trying to appease his presumed wrath, and, and he's using wisdom and common sense to do this. We see the same exact thing happen in, uh, in 1 Samuel 25. Remember when, when David, in, in a fit of rage, swears to destroy Nabal and his family? Abigail, his wise wife, what does she do? Well, she sends presents and she spaces them out and sends them before her to appease the wrath of David. Well, the same thing's happening here with Jacob. And having sent this delegation ahead, drove after drove, Jacob, in verse 21 and 22, stays the night in the camp. It's, apparently, he tries to get some sleep. But, but apparently, sleep uh, seems to escape him. And he seems so restless that in verse 22, that same night, he gets up and he sends his family, his two wives, the two maidservants, his 11 sons, and all that he has, he sends them all across the Jabbok River at night. Now, this would be dangerous. The Jabbok River, it's translated a stream. Don't think of a bubbling brook that you could jump over. And this is, this is a significant water crossing. And doing it at night is dangerous. And so commentators have have uh, wondered, why is he doing this at night? Is he trying to get the jump on Esau? Is he, is he not wanting to be caught in a vulnerable spot? I mean, if he wakes up in the morning and, and Esau is right there on the other side of the Jabbok, it, it'd be very difficult for him to cross. Whatever his motivation was, uh, uh, he is successfully able to send all of his family over the Jabbok River and one other thing to note about the Jabbok is uh, this is a, a, a tributary to the Jordan River. So if you think of Israel as the Jordan River kind of serving as that barrier between what is uh, Israel, or the land of Canaan, and what is known as the Transjordan region, what is now modern-day Jordan, we're on the east side of the Jordan River. And yet the Jabbok River, which flows westward into the Jordan is about 25 miles north of the Dead Sea and would serve as the border of the first territory claimed by Israel of the Promised Land. We see, we see that in Numbers chapter 21. When that first generation of Israelites are about ready to go in and claim that land, uh, Numbers 21, they, they claim territory to the Jabbok. And so really, this is an important milestone in the return of Jacob back to the land of promise. In crossing this river, he is, uh, making, he is going to step foot into the first territory claimed by Israel. This is a milestone. This is an important marker for him to cross. And he sends his family and all of his possessions across. And yet Jacob himself stays on the other side by himself. Perhaps... He's wanting uh, uh, some solitude at this point. 
Perhaps he wants a little peace and quiet, a calm before the storm. Perhaps he wants a moment of reflection or a time of prayer. Or maybe, maybe he's just trying to get some sleep before the, t- the tough day ahead of him where he has to face his brother Esau. But if Jacob was hoping to get a moment of peace and quiet before he encountered his brother Esau, he was disappointed. As we see in verse 24 that a mysterious figure comes and engages Jacob in hand-to-hand combat that lasts for the rest of the night. This mysterious man, as he said, as he's called, comes and begins wrestling with Jacob, and they wrestle throughout the night. Now, Jacob, keep in mind, is a very strong man. Remember the story back in chapter 29 when he met Rebekah and, uh, and, and he was able to roll that stone from the mouth of the well that, that otherwise would take several men to do? And he did it all by himself and watered Rebecca's, uh, uh, Rachel's flocks. Jacob was a considerably strong man. And that's seen here, in not only the fact that he's able to wrestle all night long, uh, but that he seems to be prevailing. He seems to be winning the fight, and as we see in verse 25, that the man did not prevail over Jacob. And yet, we get a hint as to the identity of this man. In verse 25, we get a hint that he is no ordinary man, as a simple touch on Jacob's hip gives a a debilitating injury. It, It knocks his hip out of socket. And so as, as, the, as the man is struggling with Jacob, unable to overcome him, all he does is touch his hip. And Jacob is immediately hobbled, immediately rendered unable to continue fighting in the way that he did. And so here we get a hint that this man is not just an ordinary man. And really at this point, we find out that the reason why Jacob was prevailing throughout the fight is because the other man was just toying with him. It's kind of like when I wrestled my three-year-old son, right? I don't go full force on him. But what do I do? I get down on my knees. And I make it seem as if he is winning, right? Even, even a, a small hit and I fall over, right? You, it's the way that a father wrestles with the son. It's as if this man is toying with Jacob, letting him win. But only at the certain point, touching his hip, sending him his hip out of socket. And this injury, this injury hobbles him and, un, and, and makes, renders Jacob unable to continue the fight. And so he is simply left to cling to his opponent. Now, any of you who have ever done wrestling or jiu-jitsu or have watched any sort of mixed martial arts, you know at this point, Jacob has lost the match. If, 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 the, if all you can do is cling to your opponent, the referee is going to come in and break it up and declare a winner. Jacob is not winning the fight at this point. He's lost the fight. And yet tenaciously, he holds on to his opponent and begs for a blessing. This is uh, actually what the prophet Hosea, reflecting upon this scene. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, he says, He wept. And sought his favor. And so just picture Jacob here 
tears streaming down his face, no doubt in extreme pain that his hip's out of socket, but also just with the frustration of everything that he's been going through, all of the trials and all of the things that he is facing the next day. And now he has to wrestle this, this man, and he's clinging to him, and he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. The fact that Jacob asks this man for a blessing is a tacit admission that he sees this man as his superior. As the author to the Hebrews tells us, the superior always blesses the inferior. And so he recognizes that this man is more than just an ordinary man. He recognizes that this man is great enough to bless him, and he begs for his favor. In reply, the man asks Jacob his name in verse 27. This pointed question really gets to the heart of the matter in Jacob's life when he says, what is your name? And by giving his name, by saying, my name is Jacob, really what Jacob is doing here is confessing his sin. Keep in mind, the name Jacob means cheater, deceiver. You may recall back in 27, when after Esau finds out what he had done in deceiving his father and stealing his blessing, he says, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. What parent is right, right mind would name his son Jacob? Well, it's a good name, right? He says, my name is Jacob. My name's Cheater. My name's Deceiver. And in acknowledging his name, he acknowledges his conduct up until this point. That's how he's gotten ahead in life, by cheating, by deceiving. And by, by being asked his name and confessing his name, ultimately, he confesses his sin. Yeah, I'm rightly called Jacob. And yet, what does the man say? No longer. No longer shall your name be called Jacob. You're not a cheater anymore. You're not a deceiver anymore. You have a new name. You have a new identity. You see, not only is this mysterious figure great enough to bless Jacob, but we see also here that he's great enough to be able to name him and rename him, which shows ownership and ultimately shows a change of identity as God renamed Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. He shows a a change in their identity and their walk of faith. And here also, this man names Jacob Israel. So we see this man, as Jacob will soon learn, is none other than God himself. Strictly, uh, uh, specifically, the angel of the Lord, the one who speaks for God and is God, as we see in Hosea chapter 12. The one speaking to Jacob here and renaming him is a pre-incarnate manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to him, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but your new name is Israel. In giving Jacob a new name, the Lord sovereignly and graciously bestows upon Jacob a new identity. And ultimately, that is true of each and every one of us. As we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we have been given a new name. Our new name is Christian. Our new identity is in Christ. As Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He has a new name. No longer shall we be called Jacob, but Israel is our name. 
And it's interesting how he names him Israel, which probably best is translated God fights or God strives. And yet in giving the reason for the name, we see an ironic twist. Notice there in verse verse 28, he says, uh, Israel shall be your name, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You see, there's a twist there. Israel means God fights, implying God is the one who fights for us. And yet in giving Jacob this name, the Lord says, you have fought. You have striven with both God and men and have prevailed. And we might rightly ask, is that the case? Did Jacob really prevail? It seems to be at this point that Jacob's efforts have gotten him nowhere. His efforts to get the blessing from his brother Esau have backfired. For the most part, everything he did with Laban, apart from the blessing of God, didn't get him anywhere. And even in this fight with the angel of the Lord, he seems to have lost, not prevailed. And yet, here's the twist. Jacob had to learn to rely not upon his own merits or his own ingenuity or his own devices and desires, but he had to learn to cling solely to the gracious promises of God. And in so doing, as he clings, literally clings to Christ Jesus and says, I will not let go until you bless me, that's how he prevailed. This is a victory through deceit, uh, sorry, a victory through defeat. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So even though the earthly referee would declare Jacob the loser, God declares him the winner because he embraced the gracious promises of God. And having received the blessing, having received the new name, having received the new identity through the promise of God, Jacob uh, uh, is, is able in the aftermath to name this place. And here, as he, as he yet again gives, assigns a name to the location where God appeared to him, as he did back at Bethel or at Mahanaim, Jacob names the place, highlighting and commemorating the significance of the revelation that God gave to him. Bethel is the house of the Lord. Uh, Mahanaim is the place of two camps. And here he names the place Peniel, which means the face of God. See, he recognizes that although he was shrouded in darkness, he, he, faced, he, he wrestled with God face to face. And it's at this point, coming to the realization of the true identity of his opponent that Jacob thanks the Lord for a greater deliverance than the one he had previously prayed for. Back in verse 11, he had prayed for deliverance from the hand of his brother Esau, whom he feared. But here, he had just seen the one who who had said on another occasion, no one shall see me and live. See, Jacob learned the important lesson that if you fear God, you need not fear anything else. Jacob had prayed for deliverance from the wrath of his brother Esau when he should have been praying for deliverance from the wrath of God. Jacob presumed that he, in and of himself, was fit to waltz right back into the land of promise. You see that Jabbok River? As I said, that's a milestone. 
That's an important marker for him to enter back into the land of promise. And he assumed that he was fit in and of himself to cross that river and waltz right back into the land of promise. But he had to learn an important lesson. That Jacob was not fit to enter into the land of promise. Jacob was not welcome. Jacob the cheater. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the conniver. The one who was trying to do things on his own. Was not welcome to the holy land. Only the newly renamed Israel was welcome to come back to the land of promise. And he wouldn't be waltzing, but he would be limping. Limping is the posture of faith. Limping is what you and I do on a daily basis as we walk this journey to our heavenly homeland. Being humbled and hobbled by our own sin being humbled and hobbled in order to rest not upon our own strength, but upon the sovereign grace of God in order to get us to our, earthly, our heavenly destination. And this is something that the people of Israel would have to learn later on when they received this, uh, this message. As Moses reminds us at the end of our passage in verse 32, that to this day, the Israelites do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, showing solidarity with their father, uh, Jacob, uh, newly renamed Israel. This tangible reminder that they too were limping on this journey back to the land of promise. One conclusion by way of application of this uh, remarkable passage. I think one thing it's important to note is that in our passage, Jacob prays for a deliverer. And instead, he finds an opponent. He prays for God to save him. And yet the Lord comes and challenges him to a wrestling match. And, of course, he needed, he needed this as a tangible lesson so that he would learn his greater problem. He thought his problem was his brother Esau, when in fact his problem was himself and his utter inability to realize the promises of God on his own. He had to be completely dependent upon the grace of God. And as Calvin says in his commentary on this passage, this picture of God wrestling with Jacob is a picture of each and every one of us as believers, and this is a picture of our daily experience. In other words, we're all wrestlers. You see, since all adversity comes not by chance, but by the fatherly hand of God, it is as it were, God challenges us each day to a wrestling match, which we must wrestle through faith. You see, adversity is either the rod that corrects our sins, or it is the test of our faith and patience, and God is wrestling with us through this, through this earthly walk. So we might ask, well, if God is challenging us to a wrestling match, how do we stand a chance? I'm not as strong as Jacob was. How do we stand a chance? Well, as Calvin says, we do not fight against God except by his own power and with his own weapons. And so God both fights against us and he fights for us. And I would add, he fights in us through the power of the Spirit. And he does this in order to strengthen our faith, but also to glorify himself through our weakness. And as Calvin says, since he supplies us with more strength to resist, then he employs 
in opposing us, we may truly and properly say that he fights against us with his left hand and he fights for us with his right hand. For while he lightly opposes us, toying with us as the angel of the Lord did with Jacob, he supplies invincible strength by where, whereby we overcome. This is our daily life. This is, this is our daily experience in this transitory life as we wrestle with God, but also through the strength of God we overcome. I think we clearly see this in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul as he recounts in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 of this thorn in his flesh, this, uh, this thing that, that the Lord had allowed in his life uh, to buffet him. And time and time again, it would get to him. And he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove this from me. The Lord was challenging him to a wrestling match. And Paul was tapping out. And yet God says, no, I'm not done. As he says in response to to Paul's pleads to remove this thorn of the flesh, the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 